welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week, we are joined by guests from the financial advice base to discuss some of the hot topics in the industry at the time. Over the past year, the regulator's new consumer duty has been a topic that seems to always weave itself into conversations. In July, the FCA published a policy statement which outlined firms would have an additional three months to implement the new consumer duty rules. The FCA previously said there would be an implementation date of April 30th, 2023, but many firms complained this would not be enough time. I'm Sonia Rauch, Deputy News Editor at FT Advisor, and joining me today are Simon Harrington, Head of Public Affairs at PIMFA, and Mike Barrett, Consulting Director at the Landcap. Hi both. Hi Sonia, thanks for having us on. Morning. In today's podcast, we'll be talking about what the new consumer duty really means for firms and how the FCA will regulate it. A few months back, the regulator announced what it expects from firms under the new duty. This included requirements such as ending rip-off charges and fees and providing helpful and accessible customer support. But bringing it to life, under the new consumer duty, what will advisors' day-to-day role look like? What What impact will the duty have on retail investment advisors at a high level? Maybe you want to go first, Simon? Sure. Thanks, Sonia. So... I think one of the one of the really interesting things about the consumer duty, and I, I think this will probably sort of play into a discussion we might have in in a second, is that it isn't actually immediately clear to me that the day to day role of an advisor will sort of change substantially. Um, the actual sort of provision of giving advice, of assessing suitability, of discharging your your principal, uh, discharging your obligations under principle six and seven, which have obviously now been disapplied to principle twelve, will sort of largely be the same. Mm-hmm. The shift in focus, at least at least sort of my analysis of it, and and again we'll get into sort of why this might be wrong or sort of why 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 my analysis might be challenging, is that there will now be sort of significant focus and responsibility on advisors and firms sort of more broadly to evidence why they are making decisions. So the too long didn't read version is the actual sort of process of giving advice, I think will sort of be very much the same as it is today. But the challenge and and the focus will now be sort of steered upon looking at sort of the plumbing, the infrastructure that sort of sits behind it, evidencing why you have made decisions and sort of making sure that they are the right decisions going forward for you and your clients. Yeah, no, and I think that's something that has been kind of a a running theme throughout the industry. A lot of people saying a similar thing where there might not be much uh, change going on. What what are your thoughts on that, Mike? Yeah, I think it's it's definitely a case of more kind of evolution rather than revolution from from the advice process um though those of us who can remember back to rdr that that was a significant change for advice firms with a huge amount of work which they had to do simply in order to be able to open up the doors and trade on the on the monday morning after it all and consumer duty is by no stretch of the imagination at that at that level i think that there's Again, the kind of a theme which we will probably weave throughout this is the theme of proportionality. Yes. And the the reality is that most, the majority of advice firms tend to be very, very small, mm-hmm. one-person banned businesses in a lot of cases. And a lot of the stuff which we'll talk about around kind of governance structures, um, yeah, product design and service design and all the rest of that stuff, testing of consumer outcomes, that stuff in terms of proportionality probably won't apply. It's not, yeah, a one-man band isn't going to have to appoint a board and a non-executive director onto that board to deal with all of this stuff. 
But I think day day to day, I think if if you're if you're optimistic and um, if you kind of believe that a lot of the outcomes that the FCA are driving towards are going to be achieved, then over time, day to day, then advisors' lives should get a lot a lot easier. Um, a lot of the consumer duty requirements for service standards, the quality and the transparency and the ex- understandability of the of the information which is being presented to consumers those apply as much kind of in a in an advised channel as they do in a, in a direct consumer channel so we would expect um advice some of the kind of the perennial moans we hear from advisors about service standards being on hold for 30 minutes mm-hmm. delays with platform transfers re-registration etc 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 those things in theory, should go away under consumer duty. They're, they're reasonably clear breaches of the standards that consumer duty expects. So advisors should get a much easier life as a result of it. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And I'm really happy Mike made the point that I wanted to make later on in this podcast. So thank you, Mike. Um, one of the interesting things about the consumer duty is that we have spent the last sort of 18 months to two years sort of talking about how terrible it is and sort of what challenge it is going to be for firms to implement. Mm-hmm. But now that we are sort of in the process of implementing the rules, I think it is important to start looking at the positives that will come out of that, out of this. And yes, while sort of advice firms will have sort of additional responsibilities to their to their clients, they also sit within a distribution chain, which means that providers are going to have responsibilities to them. Yeah. And there are sort of clear instances that have sort of been that have just been mentioned by Mike, which will make their jobs easier. And sort of more broadly, and I'm sure we'll talk about this when we talk about price and value in particular, I think will empower them more than has sort of currently been the case in sort of the current distribution model. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think there is obviously also that argument of uh, a lot of advisors that I've spoken to anyway have been saying, you know, that nothing sort of is changing because they'll just carry on as they are, you know, for those that are already sort of following the rules, kind of doing some of the requirements that the FCA demands of them under this new consumer duty is something they're already doing. So there's that argument. <laughs> so I, I, I think if there's one thing that people should take away from, I'm sure, all of the literature that they read and all the podcasts that they listen to, is that if you continue doing the same thing that you have been doing for the last eight years, you are doing the wrong thing. Okay, the the consumer duty is a shift in focus. And it is it does mean that your responsibilities are greater than they have been beforehand. Mm-hmm. And, and firms should sort of be very clear on sort of what they're doing and how they can improve that and specifically how they can evidence that. Yeah, no, I think that makes complete sense. And I guess, though, one of the issues that um, a lot of people in the industry have kind of questioned is um, how the FCA is going to kind of monitor and test these outcomes and, and how should they be regulating it. And, you know, that's a that's a completely separate conversation altogether. But, you know, kind of just an overview, what are your thoughts on how the FCA should be doing this? Mike, do you, do you kind of have any uh, any views on that? Yeah, so it, it goes back firstly to the proportionality uh, point, and uh, I'm probably going to say this word quite a bit, quite a bit as we as we go through. So the uh, the reality is that for the most small advice firms, this kind of this level of ongoing monitoring will be kind of data driven from the from the FCA. So they'll be on the usual kind of regulatory returns, collecting MI for the advice sector, mm-hmm. and will be looking at it at a kind of a, a macro level, a high level aggregated across across the advice sector. 
um, the interactions for larger firms and particularly kind of larger providers for larger distributors who are directly supervised under under the under by, by the regulator those interactions will happen at board level and those are going to be a lot more focused and happening a lot more rapidly i think than the than the kind of the the implementation timetable which which you set out so for example there's already been flagged that the by october the fca will be looking to see kind of board minutes evidence of the governance structure being in place to to monitor consumer duty as well as the implementation plans to to implement consumer duty that stuff will have to be required will have to be in place by by october and firms will be expected to provide evidence of that through the through their usual close and continuous regulatory re- re- regime so i think that there's going to be a lot of kind of pressure put on the on the larger firms and again proportionality will hopefully that that pressure is directed at the right place where we can then start to see some benefits to to the smaller firms kind of further down the food chain yeah a hundred percent i mean mike mike sort of talks about the sort of pressure on sort of larger organizations i think that, that that's absolutely right and 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 it's just just a sort of statement of fact that firms which are sort of directly sort of supervised will sort of have more more focus put on them but Again, and sort of without wanting to play consumer duty bingo, one of the interesting things about the consumer duty is there is no right answer, mm-hmm. right? So this is outcomes-focused regulation. It is not principles-based regulation. It is outcomes-focused regulation. And this puts the, this puts the focus on firms and it empowers firms to come up with answers and strategies that it thinks are the right ones. So, sort of one of the one of the challenges that that we sort of have with our with our member firms at Penfer is, you know, a lot of our day to day interaction tends to be with senior compliance staff, and mm-hmm. compliance staff want to be told the right answer because it just makes their jobs easier. And you know, everybody wants that. You want to be provided with a roadmap of this is how you do it and this is how, you know, the regulator will still be happy that you have you have done what is required of you. But the consumer duty doesn't do that. It says these are the broad principles that you have to work towards and it lets you figure out how you get there with, with in the realms of what is best for both your business as well as the consumers that you serve. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting things about the implementation plan that we have sort of have to see in October is that it isn't actually clear to me what that needs to look like or indeed the level of governance that it has to sort of undergo. Um, so, yes, I'm absolutely right. It should probably be sort of evidence and signed off within board minutes. But what does it actually have to look like? You know, the FCA has given very little guidance on that, and ultimately it's up to firms to decide what the right answer is on that. The same is true of MI. That brings me on to one of my other questions, which was the issue of foreseeable harm. Consumer duty obviously has a rule stating that firms must avoid foreseeable harm, but it will sort of be open to interpretation exactly what is and what isn't foreseeable. You know, could that be an issue down the line? Could that be kind of a cause for concern? I mean, did you have anything to add on that or, or Mike? So from my perspective, the cause foreseeable harm, or sorry, to prevent foreseeable harm, I mean, within the actual rule book, um, it's been changed to cause foreseeable harm, which I think is a sort of significant improvement on what the rule said beforehand. Because ultimately, you know, in retail investment, foreseeable harm is markets going down, mm-hmm. whereas causing foreseeable harm is sort of very, very different. But I do think, and sort of without wanting to go onto a little bit of a tangent here, but I'm going to sort of uh, flag my sort of 
personal bugbear of DB transfers at the moment. I think it does sort of create some very interesting questions with respect to things like insisting clients. Mm -hmm. So I think you could make the argument that transacting for an insistent client is potentially causing foreseeable harm, especially when you see and you know that it is not in the best interests of the client to do so. Under the consumer duty, does that basically mean that insistent client sales and transactions are dead forever or or, or, or are firms sort of still permitted to do so, provided they are sort of very clear in the way in which they communicate to the client? Mike, did you uh, have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think that... that I think this is definitely an area which is going to evolve and we we have heard quite a few concerns flagged that as I said this kind of this kind of woolly interpretation of what foreseeable harm might actually mean and FOS might have their own mm. interpretation of that and might start to kind of over time set set precedence and kind of def- I guess create their own definition of what is and isn't foreseeable. I mean, I, I think it's a really difficult area. I, there's a couple of examples I would use just to kind of briefly draw this out. So, firstly, the the Woodford fund mm-hmm. um as mm-hmm. uh, uh, simon says uh fi- funds can go down you can lose money you might not get back all that you invested and mm-hmm. that that part of it feels to me is something which is foreseeable you could also argue that it was reasonably clear that he that fund was investing in illiquid assets which um, again that was unfortunately foreseeable what happened but it kind of feels to me that the end outcome the overall outcome for that can't yeah that surely can't be uh acceptable under consumer duty overall i think the other area and again this is an area which is something we we work with a lot of firms around and a lot of providers around in particular is the topic of platform re-platforming mm. technology migrations mm-hmm. and you kind of historically have heard providers rightly kind of flag to advisors when a when a migration is imminent that yeah there will be bumps in the road it's there might be a difficult landing and all of those usual cliches so they're expecting issues to come through but yeah again how how far kind of is it just kind of oh yeah the website was slow to load or it was down at 6 30 a.m on a wednesday morning or some of the more significant issues which we've seen with those migrations again that kind of shades of gray and how that might be interpreted yeah. some of that might be yeah oh, the types of things which you will need to avoid under consumer duty. Yeah, I think I think so. I think the point about FOS is a really important one. And uh, it's, it's one that we've been sort of concerned about since the first uh, consultation, because the rules as written are sort of really, well, relatively subjective. I think the FCA has done a really fantastic job uh, with its guidance in terms of sort of clarifying certain kind of grey areas. But the nature of outcomes-based regulation, especially with the appeal system that we have, means that there will be some cases where FOS becomes the ultimate arbiter of what is and is not a good outcome. Mm-hmm. And this represents a reasonably sort of significant transfer of power from the FCA to the FOS which I think is very much an unintended consequence of the consumer duty. And I think going further down the line, the FCA and and I think probably government more broadly probably needs to look at whether or not 
this means the role that Foz is currently fulfilling is the one that I initially sort of intended to do, whether or not it has additional powers, and as a result should be further accountable to government or indeed the regulator. Yeah, and it's interesting to see that actually even for the regulator and and kind of beyond companies and advisors, there's going to be some sort of shift to to see where that kind of goes. Obviously, just kind of um, coming back to sort of the the kind of advisor's role and and within consumer duty, it's obviously quite broad ranging and there's a lot to it. But one sort of question that I think uh, is reoccurring is how can firms demonstrate that clients understand sort of the layers of charging from fund management, discretionary management, platform, advisor charge? You know, does this sort of stack up and represent value for money for all clients? all of the time or you know how how does that work in the grand scheme of things yeah i think i think for me the 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 important the important thing to kind of build into the process around this so so firstly firms and i think even the small one-man band firms should have a documented process or a documented view of what their what the house view is for for value for money so what do they believe is value for money and you could include all elements or you should include all elements of the of the value chain to use a horrible phrase in in that so advice fee platform fee investment fees etc etc yeah the house view of yeah what is reasonable what is what is unreasonable and i think it's that it's that final part of the um the exceptions to the rule Mm. so if as a firm you believe x represents a total an acceptable total cost where does that become where does that become unreasonable where does that become no longer that it's value for money and looking at that for kind of different client scenarios whether it's very, very small investment amounts, mm-hmm. um, very, very large sizes. So you might want to consider maybe capping some fees where, yeah, great news, Mr. Client, you're so wealthy that we don't <laughs> need to charge you a basis point fee. We're going to charge you a fixed fee or we're going to cap your fees because we've taken enough out of you. It's that exceptions to the rule that that kind of and recognising perhaps some of the different service models you might want to build around that issues around consumer vulnerability where they might need different want or need different services Mm -hmm. yeah having those exceptions in place rather than just yeah this is our this is the figure which we charge and that's it and that applies to everybody that doesn't feel to me to be um acceptable under under the new outcome but having those exceptions will be yeah i mean again to the point that i made right at the beginning of this it's about evidencing and justifying the reasons why you do something and ultimately you know firms are going to be the final arbiter within the distribution chain of what is value and whether or not you can sort of sell a product advise on a product at a price at which it is sort of reasonable for the individual to sort of pay for it mm-hmm. but it's also sort of going to turn the it's going to turn the focus for firms increasingly inward and it's going to Within the realms of what is proportionate, within the realms of what is reasonable, it is going to force them to ask questions about their models. Why do you charge for advice at the level that you charge for advice? What is a reasonable sort of uh, what is a reasonable sort of price to pass on to the consumer? And I think these are sort of very very interesting questions. And I think the vast majority of firms will be sort of very happy with the conclusions that they reach, having sort of asked those questions of themselves. Mm -hmm. But the challenge is, 
being there and being able to sort of get into the right mindset to ask those questions and be able to sort of evidence them in a way that is reasonable for the regulator. Yeah, and I guess in a way that the the end client will also kind of be able to to process and understand. And yes. that was one of my last questions, which was just around how the advisor's role will shift or will not shift in terms of communication and how they communicate this information. I think communication is genuinely one of the most exciting aspects of the consumer duty. Because I think there are a lot of things which advisors are currently required to do, especially with respect to disclosure, which you can reasonably say do not necessarily fit within the sort of four outcomes. Mm-hmm. We currently have a bill going through going through Parliament which is looking to revoke significant sort of a, a large section of the European uh, handbook. We, we have a sort of presumptive nominee for Prime Minister who has committed to reviewing MIFID. And I think you can look at a lot of the disclosure requirements which sit within MIFID, which have been specifically onshored, and make the argument that they no longer sit within the consumer duty. More broadly, before we have that process, there is, I think, an opportunity for firms, and again, within what is reasonable, because the likelihood is is that smaller firms in particular are going to want to do with what is required with them from a regulatory perspective because it is safe and it is right. But I think larger firms can probably start sort of experimenting with the way in which they communicate with clients, the way in which, for example, they communicate risk, the way in which they sort of nudge people towards sort of certain decisions, etc., and as long as they can sort of justify that it is in the client's best interest, as long as they can test that in a way that is proportionate and reasonable, I think that probably leads to an area where firms can, I mean, I wouldn't say exciting because it is ultimately just financial <laughs> services communication. But I think there is sort of scope to do some pretty sort of innovative and sort of exciting things further down the line. And again, if we get sort of legislative and handbook changes as well further down the line, then that is genuinely sort of quite revolutionary. Yeah, I think at the risk of violently disagreeing with with, with Simon all the time, <laughs> yes, I certainly agree with that. I think this this feels to me that this is the one where it will take time to embed because yes. the, the reality is a, a lot of the things Simon talked about there will need a lot of process and thought behind them and also perhaps kind of systems in MI to identify different groups of consumers with different consumer needs and different understanding needs. But ultimately, I mean, this this the the consumer understanding outcome is is about shifting away from the world which we we all know exists at the moment, where I can give you a forty eight page terms and conditions document which is compliant and mm. ticks the box from a compliance point of view. But even I'm not sad enough to read a forty eight page <laughs> terms and di- conditions document. No, nobody in the real world looks at that, let alone engages with it, let alone has any sort of understanding coming out of that. And yeah, if again, thinking of the positives that consumer duty might deliver, if we can make a reasonably significant shift away from that that position, that that's got got to be a positive outcome. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's all we've got time for, but that's that's a, a, a good point to to finish on, I think, um and just sort of not not go on too much about the consumer duty because I think it's too much of a broad subject. So thank you uh, both for joining me today and coming on to discuss this topic. And to everyone listening, please keep tuned next week for the next podcast. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.